Hello, and welcome to The Advantage Investor, a Raymond James Limited podcast, a podcast that provides perspective for Canadian investors who want to remain knowledgeable, informed, and focused on long-term success. We are recording this on December 21st, 2021. I'm Chris Cooksey from the Raymond James Corporate Communications and Marketing Department. And today we are pleased that Associate Vice President and Portfolio Manager in our mutual fund and ETF strategy group, Spencer Barnes, has returned to discuss the latest issue of the Managed Money Report. Welcome back to the Advantage Investor, Spencer. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Chris. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be here today, and I'm looking forward to walking through this report in a little bit of detail. Sounds good. Always a pleasure to have you here. Your insights are always appreciated. Uh, Let's jump right in, um, and let's talk about something maybe that hasn't been in the news with uh, how well the markets are doing, but uh, why is it important to understand underperformance? Yeah, thanks, Chris. It's, you know, it's, it's one of those areas that people often think about, but they think about it probably either at the wrong time or in the wrong way. And it really, it tends to scare them. The idea behind this report and what I really wanted to trans, um, to get across to folks was that every manager, every index will underperform at some point in time. The question is not if, it's, it's a matter of when. And then the second question is, why is it underperforming? And if we can understand what that underperformance is being driven by, like perhaps it's the markets, you know, perhaps, you know, for a number of years, for example, value investing was out of favor and, you know, value investors just couldn't do anything right. Um, It didn't mean that you didn't have a talented manager working for you or that your money wasn't being managed in a very skilled way. It just happened that forces outside of your control were working against you, that they were kind of piling up against you. So understanding where that underperformance is coming from helps you make much better long-term strategic decisions um, for your investment portfolio. That makes sense. Totally. Now, um, peer comparison, obviously you want to, when you're comparing, um, you know, apples to oranges, uh, that the famous saying there, we want to make sure we're comparing apples to apples. So um, how does peer comparison work and maybe touch on the importance yeah, certainly. And then actually, I might jump back too, because I forgot a couple of things that I wanted to mention there as sure. well. Um, peer comparison, what's really important um, in that manager analysis in general, but you know, very specifically when we're comparing investments and we're trying to understand that underperformance, we need to be comparing our investments to something that makes sense. Now, you and I have talked about this before, but I bring it up because it, it's really the foundational work of any good portfolio, which is why are you invested the way that you're doing? You know, your advisor helps you put you into the right portfolio for your long-term success. So, you know, is that long-term growth and appreciation? Is that current income? That is the underpinning of all of this analysis. Knowing what you were doing and why you were doing it, setting that foundational goal, then allows you to make those questions. So, you know, to that peer group comparison, there's a few ways that we I want to look at this and I want to dissect it. The first is saying back to that growth versus value example. If you have a growth manager and you're comparing them to a value-based benchmark, that's not really telling you a whole lot about that manager's specific performance. Really what that's doing is saying one style versus the other has outperformed. Okay, great. That's good to know. Perhaps we should have had a little bit more growth in our portfolio if we were more value orientated or vice versa. You know, those are interesting and important decision points, but that doesn't really tell us how that particular manager has done. Um, One of the things, and, and maybe I'm jumping ahead of myself here, but one of the things that's changed in the Canadian index, or excuse me, Canadian industry 
is having more index-based funds. So I made a point of saying, you know, specifically ETFs have changed the game on this in Canada. And why I was particular about that is one, Canada invented the ETF, so that's cool. But more so, the US has had index-based mutual funds for a very, very long time. Vanguard brought these to markets back in the 80s or 90s, if I'm not mistaken, if not even earlier, let's not put a date on it because I'm sure I'll get it wrong, but they've had them for a long time. And why that's important is it allows us to say, okay, we'll take our active manager and we'll put it up against uninvestable benchmark. You could buy the broad market if you wanted to and which one performed, um, outperformed over a particular period of time. Um, when we look at our own peer analysis, where that becomes really important is we'll take a value manager, for example, and we'll say, okay, well, now we have a value-based ETF on the same basket of securities. And we can objectively say, well, you know what? The manager underperformed the value-based index compared to their stock selection, sector selection, et cetera. And that tells us quite a lot, actually. That one is a much more powerful comparison because we can say, listen, it's great. Your process, your philosophy sounds good, but over the last five years, you haven't been able to beat a benchmark that is simply constructed by say price to book and price to sales. Right. You know, are you really worth that extra dollar or two? One thing I wanted to circle back to in terms of understanding underperformance, and this is something we see all the time, and it's really hard to to not get attracted by it, but there is always this, you know, tremendous performance from an ETF or a mutual fund. Usually, you know, they're up 50 to 60, 70% if the market's done 20%, you know, just tremendous outperformance. And it's easy to get distracted by that and say, oh, wow, like, oh, I should have invested in that. And the important part there for me is kind of two or even threefold. One is that there will always be another index that has outperformed. You know, they'll launch a new one. It might not even have investments tracking it, but it'll just say, hey, this great basket of securities did exceptionally well. In the world of marketing, in the world of, you know, financial analysis, you can do back testing. You can say, had we owned this basket of securities, we would have had this performance. Now, I, I'm careful in, in the world of marketing, you can't actually display that without saying this is a simulated back test. But we do see it from time to time. And that's oftentimes what things are built off of. Say, you know, we would have had this tremendous performance had we done all this stuff. Now, again, why this is important and bringing it back, looking at massive outperformance, again, tells us, okay, they got it right. But usually there is a discrete event that drove that outperformance. So over the last year, let's look at um, cloud computing and um, blockchain technology and, and servers and AMD and NVIDIA. You know, there was a very specific and discrete event that helped those things. Maybe a few of them, fair enough. You know, we had car manufacturers needing more silicon chips. We had blockchain and, you know, Bitcoin miners all needing the same processors. So the value of NVIDIA and AMD sort of skyrocketed. And all of these ETFs that tracked cloud computing or work from home themes, given the pandemic, did exceptionally well. That's not, we can't look at that and objectively say, okay, that's a great investment. Let's buy that for the next five years. You might think that the theme of working from home is still a powerful theme over the next five years. And it very well could be. And that, and that is an important way to couch that. But to say, hey, this one did 100% last year, likely it might do 50% this year. Well, well, no, you know, right. if those names have run, if that discrete event has occurred, you know, there might be nowhere else for those things to go, but, you know, trade sideways or even down, you know, if you look at the valuations and I try to not get too into the weeds on those sort of things, but, you know, if you have companies trading at, you know, 50 times 2025 20, earnings and you go, huh, 
that seems a little rich. Um, <laughs> the theme makes a lot of sense, and I like that theme. But wow, that's a little out of my league. So, like, you know, measuring uh, your performance in the marathon when you jump in for the last hundred meters is is difficult to do, right? Like, it doesn't tell you anything for the first. 26 odd miles or whatever. I think that's what a marathon is. I've clearly never been near one, but uh, um, now when we start thinking about manager analysis, what are you, what are you focusing on? So we look at a bunch of stuff and I actually, I love that comparison because that's kind of exactly it. You can't just jump into the tail end of a race and say, see, I did a good job. It's like, yeah, well, yeah. what did you do the entire race? Did you pace yourself properly? Did you, you know, expend too much energy at the start? Take the, take the bus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I showed up to the finish line. It was great. That's my kind of race. Um, in terms of manager analysis, we look at a number of things. And overall, what we like to couch this in is, is the process repeatable? So I, I'll, I'll do this probably a couple of times, but going back to what we just talked about there in terms of, was that a discrete event? And, and you know, what does that mean? Well, how we then parlay that into our analysis is to say, we're not really interested in trying to call discrete events. They're too difficult. You know, the smartest money managers in the world, when you chat with them, will say, you know, calling interest rates is a fool's game. It's almost impossible to do accurately all the time. Um, you know, finding the next Amazon or the next Google is everybody's dream and hope and wish. But I mean, the reality behind that is just, it's, it's exceptionally difficult to do. Black swans are black swans for a reason. Exactly. So we look at, uh, things like process, their philosophy, their approach, how diligent are they in conducting that analysis? So for example, are they a bottom-up manager? Are they looking at the security level first and then building a portfolio around securities that match their own uh, objective criteria, a price to book of, you know, a price to their sales ratio or a price to their book value of X or Y? And, and then, you know, is the management in line? Are they following ESG principles? The second type, typically, if you were to frame it as the, the big categories, would be top-down managers. So managers, rather rather than looking at the individual company details first, they're saying, you know what, we want to look at an industry level or an economic level and start looking for securities in areas that we think from our macro view will do well and then typically get into bottom-up analysis. There's usually some security selection. If not, it's typically a passive ETF um, with, a, with a rules based around it. Um, and then, you know, how are they approaching trading? I mean, are they active traders? Are they buy and hold managers? Are they buying secure? Are they in and out based on price targets? Are they, you know, buy and hold managers who frankly don't really care about, you know, pennies or, you know, small one to 2% movements in the stocks, because really they're looking for stocks that are going to go up, you know, 20 or 30%. That's their target. Well, then one or 2% as they're trying to leg into a position is not really a big deal for them. So all of this, What's interesting about this type of work is that there's no right answer. There's no rule book that says, if you do A, B, and C, then X, Y, and Z, you will have a successful investment. But what we have found over time, what empirically research has found over time is that those who follow a disciplined process allows us to evaluate that manager and to be able to make decisions and put that into a portfolio that meets our needs. So again, going back to that, for example, um, portfolio construction. If you need income and you're drawing on your investments and you want to sort of maintain your principal, well, having somebody who's a little bit more value orientated might make some sense. Dividend orientated typically falls into the same bucket. You know, you're looking for companies who are trading at reasonable valuations who are paying a dividend and that income component is the most important one. You might not have high flying growth and it, it might be tough. There might be times where the market's up 20% and your manager's up 10 and they're delivering you a yield of four and a five percent. Well, 
from a total return perspective, you might say, well, it doesn't really matter. I wish I had had 20%. Fine. But that, you know, might be a significantly more volatile investment that might be down 15 or 20%. And your goal was capital preservation with income. Well, if you're getting your stream of dividends and you're able to cover your monthly expenses without touching your principal, is that investment suitable? Is that making sense? So, you know, you kind of put all of that together again. You look at their philosophy, look at their approach. Are they consistent with it? How is their management structure? The last point here, because I could go on forever here. <laughs> and if you have any follow-ups, I'd be happy to go into it. But sure. the last point too is, is team structure. So do you have a team that works together on a particular fund or do you have sort of a star portfolio manager who has all of the decision-making power and, you know, takes inputs from elsewhere again, one versus the other, there doesn't, there's not necessarily a right versus wrong. There's some excellent star portfolio managers out there that have done a tremendous job. Um, you know, Kathy Wood from ARC, uh, Mark Schmale from Fidelity, Noah Blackstein from Dynamic. These are managers who have done an incredible job of accumulating wealth for individuals. Um, and really a lot hangs around their decision-making, their views on the markets, their process. The key with people like that though, is when you're doing your manager analysis, and we're going to get into this, I think a little bit later, um, you have to be a little bit more careful of that structure. If that person leaves, key person risk, as they call it, right. if that person leaves, well, then the rest of that philosophy is kind of thrown out the window, even if all of that is good research. Well, if that person was making all the decisions and they're gone, well, kind of have to start back from square one. If there's no bench strength behind uh, the manager or the help behind the manager, then you're not investing in the same product as, as you were previously. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we've talked a lot about how investors behave and panic and you know, love volatility on the way up, not so much on the way down. Um, but let's just talk a bit about behavioral bias. Um, is there anything new here? Well, the one that I wanted to highlight in this particular report was back to that theme of, of seeing a lot of noise around and saying, oh, well, this one was up a couple hundred percent and why wasn't I invested in that? And it's the idea of loss aversion. And this right. one's a little bit counterintuitive. Because loss aversion impacts us in two ways. One is avoiding selling our losing investment. So we don't want to sell something. And that's funny. Again, it's a little counterintuitive to part of the narrative of this report, which is understand your underperformance and don't necessarily cut somebody loose just because they've had a bad quarter or a bad sure. you know, year. Um, but it's understanding on both the up and downside. So loss aversion, again, is holding on to our losing investments for longer than fundamental analysis would suggest or analysis would suggest. So, you know, going back to our process and philosophy, they've broken their process. They don't follow their process. Their philosophy doesn't make sense given the market conditions. And there's been a ton of turnover. Like those are all triggers and key points where we could say, you know what, this manager is different than what we bought. It's a sell. Um, What's nice about having that structure is you don't actually have to look necessarily at returns. They might be up and you could say, you know what, it's still a sell because I'm looking at this and saying they're not doing what they were supposed to be doing or they've changed how they're doing it and maybe let them do it a little bit longer and see, but probably, you know, you should be looking for a new manager in that position. So it's <clears throat> that on the downside. Counterintuitively though, it's also selling our winning investments too early or earlier than they should be where there's still more upside to be gained. And this is a point where, again, um, manage money, mutual funds, ETFs does a really nice job of protecting investors against this. It makes it sort of trickier in some respects, but it makes it a lot easier in other respects. It makes it easier because we don't see the individual names in our portfolio and how much they're up. And why that's important is because we don't necessarily, you know, we have a lot going on in our day-to-day -day jobs, those investors in those funds, 
um, they're not following that specific company's earnings. They're not looking and saying, you know what, it sure it's up 200%, but like this company is still very attractive and it's just in a burgeoning industry. It might be up 600% by the end of next year. This is, you know, we need to be buying more of this, not selling it. Whereas as an individual, you might see a line item in your account and it's up 200%. You think sell, 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 sell. Like we're up 200%. We need to get out of this. Like, this is great. Um, it's not really fair, but I cherry picked one of the best examples I could think of, which was Apple. And I, you know, but it's interesting to look at, right? So if you had bought Apple stock on January 1st, 2000 and sold it on October 1st, 2007, you would have had about a, a roughly 500% return. That's a pretty great investment, yes. particularly over that time period. Um, win, win, win. If you had held that position until October 21st, uh, excuse me, October 1st, 2021, it would now be worth 18,000%. Hmm. Quite a bit better I mean, than 500. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit better than 500. Um, you know, there's, that one has been used time and time again by a couple of professors who I've worked with and chatted sure. with where, you know, you talk about option strategies and when you try to get a little bit more sophisticated with things, that upside gets called away. The professor I'm thinking about, you know, told stories in class of how he was the smartest person in the room. He was writing options on on this little tech company and he was making hand over a fist money on this. And it wasn't it great. And that company was Apple and it was trading at $40 a share. And had he just held on to that, he could have retired 10 years ago. Um, so, you know, interesting stories like that, that. Again, it's 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 understanding what the value of a company is and allowing that work to be done for you. And again, putting it back into this bow, manage money in mutual funds in ETFs allows us to take a little bit out of the out of the day-to-day nuance of that. We don't have to worry whether that position is up too much or down too much. Somebody is doing that for us, or frankly, the index is doing that for us. Right. You know, it's not really active versus passive. It's saying just take yourself out of that decision-making process and let the market work for yourself. Now, mean reversion. Uh, I have three teenagers um, and every so often they like me. And I know though, it will be only a matter of minutes before they begin to dislike me again, reverting to the mean. Um, (laughs) Why is mean reversion important? So mean reversion can be important. And it can be important because it can give us signals or ideas. Now, at the same time, mean reversion can be dangerous and a bit of a fallacy almost because, you know, it's it's not necessarily going to happen that way. It, it's, it's common in stats, in statistical analysis. We see it quite a bit. It's common in nature, for example. There's other areas where it's much more predictable that things will return to your mean. Perhaps your example is a good one where that one can be counted on more than not. Um, With manager analysis, where mean reversion can be interesting is that idea that people go through good times and bad times and, and an investment philosophy or approach could struggle, but then will it come back into favor? You know, will growth investing be the only thing that makes money for the next hundred years? Likely not is my guess. I think something takes that place. Maybe it's hyper growth. I don't know. Maybe it's true discount value. You know, things that we don't even know today, factors we haven't even figured out might be the leading drivers. But the idea again with mean reversion is saying, if somebody is consistent and going back to our manager analysis, are they following their process? Are the, is their philosophy and their approach um, repeatable? And are they doing the same thing, but something else is out of favor? So the markets are out of favor, or, you know, luck just isn't on their side at some point in time, which, which happens. You know, the idea of a skilled portfolio manager is what we can't explain through analysis. So through sector selection, or stock selection, we call alpha. It's the manager's skill that is unquantifiable. 
you know, that ebbs and flows. So mean reversion could tell us, okay, this manager, you know, based on historical, um, based on their historical mean, are they, you know, outperforming or underperforming? And what does that look like? Now you have to apply mean reversion to something. And that's what we're going to get into, I think next, which is we looked at it on an information ratio basis. And I'll get into that in a second. But the idea is we took a metric and we said, okay, based on its mean, are you above or below this? And what does that tell you about the manager? And, and you can only, again, apply this logic to managers who are consistent. Right. Okay. So now in the report, we'll get more into this, into your report. There's a few graphs because um, you CFAs love those things. Um, so let's just talk a bit. Not a, sorry. a CFA candidate, I should disclaim. Oh, or else fair, I'll fair get enough, in fair trouble. enough. I know you got to follow the rules. Um, <laughs> but um, let's just talk a bit about the R. So one of them is uh, one I've never heard of, rolling information ratio. Yes. So let's, let's break that down. Um, most people or a few people might be more familiar with the sharp ratio, which is taking right, your yeah. returns minus a risk-free rate. So usually that's the interest rates. Usually that's like two or 3%. In today's world, that's pretty much zero or 25 basis points. It's, it's a little bit more difficult to use that metric. And then divided by the standard deviation of returns. So a measure of dispersion of the returns. The information ratio takes the same sort of philosophy one step further and says, rather than a risk-free rate, rather than something that's out of control of the manager, let's compare them to a benchmark or a minimum um, uh, yeah, excuse me, their benchmark. So, you know, that's where it's important to know what your benchmark is. If you're a value manager, your benchmark should be probably a value index. And then you're taking your returns minus that benchmark proxy. And then the dispersion or the difference between that, the tracking error, as we call it. So again, the returns versus the benchmark, you subtract that, you get a number, you take the standard deviation of that number. How much dispersion, how much volatility did you have in your tracking? And so that's your numerator, the, your denominator is the tracking error. Put that together and what it tells us is any value over zero, a positive value, is you're adding value on a risk-adjusted basis against a benchmark. Okay. So it's a powerful, it's a very useful ratio. It's a very powerful one. When we say rolling, what we mean is we're looking at it on a one or a two-year basis. In what got published, it was a two-year basis. Really what we're trying to do there is smooth out some of the noise. Um, statistically speaking, you kind of want to look at a longer time period. Um, and, and actually one thing I'd be remiss if I didn't say when we were talking about manager process analysis, longer time periods are better for looking at a manager. The right. only caveat there is that it needs to, the manager, <clears throat> the structure needs to be the same around that manager. Right. So we talked a little bit about star managers versus team process. Well, if you have a star manager and they have a track record of eight years on the fund and all of a sudden they leave, all of the resources are still there. They're well kitted out and that's fine, but they have a new team in place for the last two years. You can't really look at the 10 year track record right. of that fund. You have to look at the two years that that manager has now been on there and say, what have you done in the last two years? So putting that all together, we use this rolling information ratio and what it tells us 
is, is, and this is fun, we go back to statistics here, take a normal distribution. One standard deviation in terms of a band plus or minus should be there about 68% of the time. So all of the observations we would expect to be above or below that line 68% of the time, two standard deviations 95% of the time, and then three standard deviations we would expect 99% of the time. So what it shows us is, okay, where are there statistically significant um, outlying events? You know, where have we gone just sort of way off the mark in terms of where we used to be? And is that potentially a signal to us to say, listen, you know, either something is terribly wrong and this is, a, you know, an absolute sell. Or if we think, you know what, the process, the philosophy, everything is, is in check. Something else is going on here. There's a good chance that manager might come screaming back. Right. And that's what we're trying to find. Cool. Now, another one was excess returns, which doesn't sound like a bad thing, but I'm sure that means they're doing the, 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 something is performing better than expected or something along those lines, but you'd be better to explain that than I. Yes. And, and we should have said probably at the start, but this report is actually available on Raymond James Canada's website under our publications perspective. So as we're chatting about this, you can pull it up if you're interested in it. The excess returns is that component. It's the, it's the first, uh, it's the numerator in the equation of saying, okay, what it was your return and what was the benchmark return? Um, why I'd mentioned excess returns is that the graphs that we put together, we have the rolling information ratio and those standard deviation bands. So you can see statistically where they've, you know, either significantly outperformed or significantly underperformed based on that ratio. That's not necessarily performance. It's the ratio. Right. And that's an important differentiation underneath that. However, what I've also graphed is that excess return. And that is, in one sense, it's it's nothing special. It's simply the numerator in that equation. So it's already being caught in there. But in the second point, you know, if a picture is worth a thousand words, I think some of these, you know, really tell a, a fascinating story and really highlight managers and what value that they're adding. Um, we have we highlighted three different funds. Um, I'll pick on the first two quickly right now. The first one was uh, Manulife Dividend Income Fund. It's a fund I quite like. I own it in some of the portfolios that I manage myself. Um, they have had consistent excess return over the entire time period of our analysis. There's only one sort of little blip. So why are they there? Well, their information ratio has tracked up and down. So as I said, they're not one for one comparison. And that's where you can see, you know, this manager compared to their benchmark has consistently added return, even if their, you know, their volatility in that return or their, you know, up and down from that has skewed a little bit. The second one is Edgepoint Global Portfolios. And frankly, this is one of the funds that sparked a lot of this analysis last year. Um, it took a long time to put it all together. But if you look at that chart, and this is on page five of the report, you know, they had consistently added excess return over, you know, what is that, an eight and a half year time frame? Just, you know, tremendous returns, good structure. You know, they were sort of everybody's darling in terms of an investment. And their information ratio was rolling right around the mean. It was typically above the mean and hitting sort of one standard deviation coming back to the mean. It was only mean reverting in one way, which is kind of nice. All of a sudden, Come 2019-2020, their process or their, not their process, excuse me, but their investment style fell out of favor with the market. And they went almost three standard deviations below where they should, where they historically had been on on a long-term basis. And that to us was sort of the signal of saying, okay, well, what's going on here? You know, is this, is the investment 
firm themselves? Is, is something structurally happening within the firm? Have there been a bunch of turnover of managers? Are people getting sort of squirrely about it and, and you know, trying to change up and invest differently than they have been in the past? And we sat down with them. We chatted with them. They've published a lot of work recently on that themselves. And the answer was no. They just, you know, the market had one idea. They had a different idea. And theirs was taking longer to play out. They looked at the rally, for example, in 2020, of uh, these high growth names, NVIDIA and cloud computing, et cetera, and thought, we think that trade's almost played through. It's too expensive. You know, it's up 50%. Maybe it's up 20, you know, 20% more, but we don't really want to be buying it 50% up. We want to find that next thing. And while, <clears throat> as always, it's a little slow to publish, you know, what we've seen is a, a, a little bit of a reversion, excuse me, to that mean. So they've come back from three standard deviations. They hit the two, they hit the one, and they're sort of circling around there. So, you know, a lot of that has come back for sure. We think that there's, you know, potentially more upside into that manager. Now, in terms of managers, is this tools that they use in terms of timing? You know, it's... it. <sighs> Ideally, you want to be able to time the market or time a manager. That would be the, the best case scenario. It'd be great to walk away from this and saying, you run this and your advisor has this little tool and it's going to tell you to buy this and sell this. At the end of the day, no, that's a little <laughs> bit, <laughs> it's, it's too difficult to do that. Um, and it's disingenuous to say that you could do that. But yes. what this is, is another piece of the puzzle that your advisors have to walk through managers to say, you know what, I think that there's something here. I think it matches with what your needs are in terms of your long-term planning. And here's a manager that might be able to capitalize on that or vice versa. It might be a nice signal, excuse me, not even a signal, but just sort of an additional piece of analysis that you can look at if you are a holder of that fund, for example. You know, if you held edge point for those 10 years leading up to this sort of bout of underperformance and you were thinking, you know what, I, I probably need to sell this. I, you know, this manager is really you know, this is not aligned with me anymore. You know, it might be a nice little addition to say, well, well, hold on here. Like perhaps there's something going on here that, you know, is, is outside of the manager's control. And, you know, we might be, it might be better to, to hold than it would be to, to sell too quickly. Put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Now um, let's just finish off here. Uh, corporate class funds. Uh, I remember when these were the next big thing and everyone had to be in corporate class and tax advantages and this and that. Nah, nah, nah. Haven't heard about corporate funds in a long time or corporate class funds in a long time. So um, maybe a quick little refresh as to what they are and um, are they still doing what they're supposed to do? Yeah. So corporate class ones used to be, as you said, the, the big, new, exciting thing. And from a tax perspective, when they first launched, they had some tremendous, tremendous advantages based on mutual compared to normal mutual fund trust. So starting at, you know, sort of first principles, a mutual fund trust is a discrete entity where your assets are custodied somewhere else. So, you know, fund company A might manage your portfolio or that particular piece of your portfolio, the assets are custodied somewhere else. And it's a discrete entity from that manager. So if something were to happen to the manager, for example, all of your assets held in that trust aren't, it's, it's kind of irrelevant. You know, it might be a little bit of a messy process going through if something were to ever shut down, but you know, let's not get into the weeds there. In a corporate class structure, what you're doing is you're actually pooling a bunch of funds under one roof. The analogy that our, um, 
our tax specialist that Raymond James gave that I quite love was um, it's a hotel with many rooms and you're sharing the expenses of so heating and the electrical, all that kind of stuff. Oh, share between all of the rooms in the hotel. And what that allows you to do in the investing context is share gains and losses against things. Um, it also allows you to distribute income in a, an efficient way for Canadian investors. So there's a Canadian dividend tax credit. So a Canadian dividend is a lot better to get than a foreign dividend, for example. Well, in a corporate class structure, what they would do is they would take the income in at the corporate level. They would pay corporate taxes on it, which can be advantageous. It can actually work against you. You have to be careful about that. And then when they pass that income through to the end investor, they're getting a Canadian dividend Um which is much more tax advantage. So there's a lot of advantages here. And when they were first launched, the biggest advantage, and this is why you saw them from all of the big players on the street, was that you could switch in between corporate class funds within the same hotel. Right. You could go to a different room on a different floor and you wouldn't be checking out. So you wouldn't have to pay your tax bill at the end of the year. So this was huge. You know, you could go from an aggressive growth manager and slowly over time, bring yourself down into a balance, et cetera, et cetera. And you're never triggering that tax. Um, the federal government stepped in in 2017 and changed that and said, we've come wise to this. We understand what you're doing. You know, this is an advantage that some are able to take and others aren't. It's not fair. Um, right or wrong, that structure has now changed. So part of the reason why you're not hearing about them as much anymore is that a lot of these corporations are winding up. So this is part right. educational piece, but it's also part to say it's a not necessarily a warning flag, but you got to be careful with them. The advantage or the disadvantages in a corporate class structure is that if you don't have enough losses to offset all of your gains, you're actually going to start getting taxed at a much higher rate than you would be if you were just in the fund trust structure. So there's, there's sort of this tipping point where you either have too many assets in it, frankly, it's doing too well, um, and you don't have enough losses to offset it, that you're actually in a worse tax position to be in there. Now, the good news for investors is this isn't something you have to sort of run out and, and figure out tomorrow. Um, most fund codes that still run these are very, they're hyper aware of where that balance is. And as soon as they get sort of anywhere near that threshold where investors are going to be much worse off in the long term, they wind down the corporation and they transfer the assets into a traditional mutual fund trust. Um, last but not least on that, um, there, there's oftentimes questions, okay, well, still, who still has them? There are some still available. Um, you can still look for them. They can still be tax advantaged. Uh, the one I'd be remiss if I didn't mention was uh, Horizons recently used to have a suite of total return ETFs that were um, broad index exposure from a very tax efficient way. They have actually wrapped that into a corporate class structure. So major broad market index exposure in a pretty tax efficient structure. Horizons is one of the few that have done it on the ETF side. It's been working really well for them so far. They might have some struggles going forward. It's really tough to cap an ETF, for example. It's really easy to cap a mutual fund, hard to cap an ETF. So they might hit some thresholds there, but you know, for, for the time being, seems like they've been able to run that quite nicely. Perfect. Thanks very much, Spencer. Really appreciate your time today. We will put this into a link to the, uh, to the report on our website in our show notes uh, to make it easier. But you can also ask your, obviously, uh, your advisor um, to, to see that report as well. Um, thanks, Spence. Really appreciate uh, you sharing your thoughts today. I wish you and yours a happy Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And uh, Hopefully we can 
start getting back together in the office again soon. Sounds good, Chris. Thanks so much for having me on today. It was great to chat with you about this. It was great to walk through it all in details and a, and a happy holidays to you and your family as well. Thank Stay you. Jam-packed that. episode, we'll call it. The Advantage Investor is now on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. So please subscribe and rate the podcast. Please contact your advisor with any questions you have. This is our last episode of 2021. On behalf of Raymond James and the Advantage Investor Podcast, I wish you all the best this holiday season. Happy New Year. And thank you for taking the time to listen not only today, but throughout the year. And until next time, stay well. podcast is for informational purposes only. Statistics and factual data and other information are from sources Raymond James Limited believes to be reliable, but their accuracy cannot be guaranteed. Information is furnished on the basis and understanding that Raymond James Limited is to be under no liability whatsoever in respect thereof. It is provided as a general source of information and should not be construed as an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any product and should not be considered tax advice. Raymond James advisors are not tax advisors and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax related matters. Securities related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member of Canadian investor protection fund.